This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. Taking a look at the issues surrounding the health and well-being of our LGBTIQ communities, this is Well, 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 brought to you by the team from Thorn Harbour Health on Joy and the Community Radio Network. Here on Well, 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 you're with Jack and Jacinta, and we're now joined by Dr Sarah Ashton, a psychologist, the director and founder of Sexual Health and Intimate, Intimacy Psychological Services, or SHIPS for short. Uh, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. I guess tell us a little bit about yourself um, and the work you're involved in. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, So uh, SHIPS is uh, Australia's first psychology practice that's specifically focused on sexual health. And we outwardly advertise ourselves as um, kink-friendly, poly-friendly, LGBTIQ plus inclusive and sex work positive. Um, That seems really important when you're talking about sex and you're wanting people to um, yeah, focus on on healing and being in a safe space. Um, so, uh, and we also provide training for practitioners. So there's actually no uh, psychology training specifically on sexual health, believe it or not. And so, um, yeah, we also deliver um, training for, for students and psychologists. Yeah, wow. Obviously, that's a really massive gap yeah. that exists. Is it something that you were aware of um, from early on in your career? Or is it something that you um, found your way towards for a certain reason? Yeah, so I've, I've always been interested in sex and sexuality. And when I was doing my undergrad in psychology, I kept waiting for there to be a sex and sexuality unit. And there was a brief mention of Freud's Oedipus complex, but then nothing else. And so... Um, I, when I had the opportunity to do a, um, an internship, I saw an advertisement for sex offender programs, and that was really my first exposure to sexual issues. But I guess on the you know extreme end of the spectrum, where things go really wrong and there's there's harm caused. Um, so yeah, I worked with sexual offenders for a while and juvenile sexual offenders. And I could really see how much um, porn was shaping their view of um, particularly women, but also sex and consent. And I really wanted to learn more about this. So I ended up doing my PhD focused on um, pornography. And as part of this PhD, I interviewed um, young cis women who um, talked about their experiences of pornography and relationships and how they consumed it. And it was these conversations that really allowed me to understand the importance of um, the space that was held between, you know, me and this other person and the importance of having these sorts of discussions that they really never had before. So that's actually what inspired me to start SHIPS. I started it um, almost just five years um, ago now. And um, yeah, it was just me. I drew a little logo and put up an ad on Seek and it's just absolutely had such an incredible response from the community and from practitioners, um, you know, because really there was there was just something missing, you know, um, in terms of, um, you know, a, spa- a safe space where we could talk about sex and understand sexual issues. So um, here we are now. Yeah. And and I guess in what ways do the service providers at SHIPS focus on sexual health and intimacy? Um, I mean, for people who haven't heard about SHIPS before or um, mm. are unaware of, you know, day-to-day what that looks like, um, mm. what kind of things do people do? 
Yes. Yeah, so all of the practitioners at SHIPS are registered psychologists, which um, means that we approach sexual issues through a psychological framework and we used evidence-based models to provide treatment. So what, essentially what this means is that we look at the whole person, their psychological makeup, their history, traumas that have happened in their life, and we look at that as an entire picture to understand the sexual symptoms in that context. So that means that we might be treating other comorbid psychological issues or the underlying root cause of these sexual symptoms, as opposed to more behavioural-based interventions, which you might typically see in um, traditional sex therapy or um, work with a sexologist. So, um, yeah, every a day-to-day -day sort of um, view of what it might look like for a practitioner would be that they're they're seeing, you know, um, they're having appointments with clients. Appointments last for about 15 minutes um, and they're working with those clients to, um, yeah, to begin their healing journey and that involves understanding themselves and looking at what interventions are going to be really helpful for addressing their symptoms. I suppose uh, LGBT, LGBTIQA plus clients welcome at SHIPS or is queerness a big part of the work you do at SHIPS? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think it's really important to acknowledge the suffering that's caused by social stigma and marginalisation that rather than pathologizing individuals. So um, there's a lot of distress that people experience because they're queer um, because of our broader um, social norms and um, discrimination that occurs rather than it actually have anything to do with, you know, there being something wrong with them. So um, it's so important that as health practitioners that we're able to distinguish between, um, you know, uh, social issues versus individual issues mm. and that we're able to create spaces where people can acknowledge this, recognise it for themselves and recognise how maybe throughout their history they've internalised some of these discriminating or stigmatising attitudes um, and also that our practitioners are really aware of their privilege and their bias and the sorts of things that they might bring into the therapeutic space so we can really work to make sure that the spaces we provide are safer. Yeah, and you'll be presenting a workshop at the upcoming LGBTIQ plus women's health conference in October. And I believe you'll be speaking to this, uh, I guess, this kind of collective trauma experienced by queer women um, and also how it relates to a particular condition. Could you tell us a bit about what that's about? Yeah, so maybe if we start by talking about dyspareunia and then I'll sort of explain how this kind of collective trauma um, connects with it. So dyspareunia is um, painful sex and painful sex can be um, caused by a number of different issues or connected to a number of different issues like vulvodynia or vaginismus. Um, sometimes there's a medical cause, but if there's not, a lot of the time, um, the reason psychologically is that someone doesn't feel safe and their body is trying to protect them. So, um, and, and the thing is that sometimes that, that sense of safety actually isn't all that conscious. Um, so we're not really aware of the sorts of things in our environment that are making us not feel safe. Um, so more often than not, if, if this is what's happening, there's usually some kind of trauma in someone's history that they maybe haven't 
framed in that way or they haven't seen in that way. Um, trauma isn't an, something that we can really define objectively. It's actually a specific type of neurological pattern and adaptation that occurs. That's what defines trauma. So if someone's experienced trauma and there's a trigger that's associated with sex or in connection with sex, um, then their body might respond by tightening their pelvic floor muscles or by heightened awareness of um, pain stimulus. And so there can be several different ways that this happens. Um, now, look, there are, there are particular types of traumas that we can probably all maybe objectively recognise as being and agree on as being traumatic like sexual trauma or maybe an event like a you know um pandemic <laughs> um so uh we might all see that as as being a, a trauma something that would cause trauma but what's not recognized as much is the trauma that occurs as a result of marginalization and stigma um as uh, a queer person and so um what what i'm going to unpack in this presentation is how this kind of trauma can work. So it, it works in two different ways. The first is that, um, you know, you might experience direct trauma as a result of stigmatizing or discriminating um, experiences in your day-to-day -day life. And this is actually stored neurologically and can influence, you know, and be triggered in a sexual context and then can result in painful sex. But also, because we are a social species and we need connection for survival, we need social acceptance for survival, if there are norms that are actually sitting in, not in alignment with our identity and our internal experience, this can mean that what we do to adapt to survive is we ostracise, we disconnect, we shame parts of ourselves um, in order to achieve social acceptance. And so what that happens is neurological fracturing, which is which is which is trauma, which is internal trauma. And this might mean that we're sort of we're carrying, you know, internalized homophobia, biphobia, transphobia, sexism, all these sorts of things, even without realizing that are activated within sexual contexts. You know, so this is really complex for queer folks. And it's so important that this is understood in the context of dyspareunia because you know, I really find that this is a missing link and it's mm. so common within the um, the clients that we see at our practice. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask about how common um, it is in the work that you do. Like, are there statistics out there or is it more that you just saw it come up time and time again through your client work? Yeah, look, dyspareunia is, is a really common, really common presentation. Um, so the stats vary based on what sort of populations you're looking at. But, you know, amongst the, the clients that we see here at SHIPS, I don't know, maybe, you know, about 20% of them would probably be made up of our client referrals. Like it's, it's quite high. It's wow, quite a common yeah. issue. People might experience this at different points in their life. So it might not be something that they, um, you know, uh, have experienced uh, it, for a long period of time. For some people, it's chronic. You know, it happens from when they start having sex. For other people, it's episodic. So it sort of, you know, is the result of um, uh, some uh, experiences that they're having in a discrete period of time. So, um, yeah, it's it, it's so important to normalise because so many people, um, you know, are suffering with this and they don't know that sex doesn't have to be painful mm -hmm. um, and they don't actually know how to address it because if you go to a medical practitioner you might not um, you know you might have 
physical based treatment. You know, you might be referred to a pelvic floor physio, which can be incredibly helpful. Mm. Um, or you might be given some creams to numb the pain. But really, you might not be able to understand the deep root cause, which is, you know, um, which can be uh, this kind of um, trauma that's connected to stigma and marginalization. So it's just, it, you know, um, it can be a real missing link to understanding what is needed for true and lasting healing. I suppose within the, the context of that, you spoke a little bit about how SHIPS does some work with practitioners. Uh, I suppose you could call it capacity building with regard to how practitioners would respond to the, that presentation of I, 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 that experience uh, you were talking about. What has been your perception of how it's been received, that capacity building, um, how it's been received by practitioners? Um, it depends on <laughs> on the practitioner <laughs> and it depends on the context. Mm. But most practitioners are so hungry mm. for, for this area of knowledge and development. They recognise that they don't know enough about it. It's not been part of their training and they're really willing and and. Um, you know, have a deep desire for for learning more about it. So, you know, I, I go out and work with um, students, clinical psych students, um, and also um, psychologists who've been, you know, working in practice for a while, and they all kind of, you know, are really acknowledging and wanting to learn more about it. And it's, it's just so important because, you know, psychologists they internalize the same kind of discrimination and um, stigmatization and some of these attitudes may be sitting subconsciously within them. And so if they're not aware of it, then they bring this into the therapeutic space and that can potentially be harmful to to clients, you know. Um, And so it's really about um, bringing that awareness to the forefront so that um, there can be, you know, exploration and observation because we have the responsibility to create um, a safer space for clients, you know. Um, and so I really think that we need to be raising the bar for healthcare and making sure that this is part of everyone's training, you know. Um, so that's that's part of my mission. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yes, a, a good mission to be on. And um, we're going to go do a quick break here on Well, 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 but we'll continue chatting with Dr. Sarah Ashton right after this. From HIV to COVID-19, STIs and everything in between, you're listening to Well, Well, Well on Joy and the Community Radio Network. Here on Well, 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 you're still with Jack and Jacinta, and we're joined uh, by Dr. Sarah Ashton, uh, the founder of and director of Sexual Health and Intimacy Psychological Services, or ships uh we were speaking before the break sarah a little bit about um the presentation you were you submitted for the uh, lgbtiq plus women's health conference this workshop is going to be delivered at that conference but beyond it i suppose why is awareness of this important for lgbtiq plus women in particular yeah look i think that um there is a history of um lgbtiq plus women being excluded from the um, thought process and inclusion in in healthcare. So I think that we have a huge task ahead of us to really um, be thinking about all the ways that um, we need to prioritise LGBTIQ plus um, health services and um, the sorts of ways that we can integrate um, inclusivity and awareness into to general health services, you know. Um, so I think dyspareunia is, you know, um, uh, 
a, a common medical condition and most you know GPs and pelvic floor physios are going to be aware of of this issue and, and had some exposure to this issue um, throughout their career um, and this this um, presentation really talks about um, the sorts of issues that we need to be aware of when we're working specifically with LGBTIQ plus um, folks and and women, um, and and more broadly, it um, it really encourages people to think about um, trauma through a different lens and all the different layers of trauma that can be relevant to understanding someone's symptoms, understanding their history, and understanding what might be contributing to the symptoms of dyspareunia, but also other symptoms in general. Yeah, because obviously there's lots of, I mean, everything is very complex and, and interacts, you know, back and forth in terms of queerness and, and our experiences. But I wanted to ask, in what ways does queerness interact with painful sex and, you know, how does it impact the experience of sex that may happen in that moment for someone and how does it impact the articulation um, of the experience afterwards. I, I guess it's it's kind of hard to, to pose a question like that, but I think what I'm getting at is um, how does queerness and heteronormativity perhaps play a role in all of this? Mm, yeah. So if um, uh, you've grown up in this heteronormative world, um, then uh, chances are uh, you've you've had some experiences where you haven't really felt accepted, you haven't really felt safe, you haven't really felt like there was permission to be to be you. Um, and so even, and, and so what I find working with queer people who are experiencing dyspareunia is that oftentimes some of those messages that, um, you know, they're not acceptable, they're not okay, it's, you know, um, that has been internalised and that um, that the fear or the the kind of um, the fear of ostracization that maybe was part of their history is the thing that might be triggered or, or coming up within their current sexual experience. Even if they feel really like they have a very trusting and safe and wonderful um, relationship um, or, you know, um, sexual partner or partners, um, you know, that, that history can still play a role subconsciously in what their, their body is doing. And I think that, you know, for a lot of the time, queer folks are ahead of the game when it comes to branching out from um, sexual scripts. So, you know, uh, heteronormative ideas around sex and sexuality usually uh, um, hold very kind of rigid scripts around how sex should go and what that should involve. Um, and so that can often be something that contributes to um, painful sexual or arousal difficulties because people, the more you have this rigid idea of what sex should be, the more pressure you can put on yourself to, to conform to that. And then when your body and your mind doesn't do that, then you can sort of see all these kind of self-critical cycles that contribute to anxiety and that can ultimately contribute to pain. So if you've already stepped out of that box, <laughs> you know, and, and you're really thinking about um, what you want, what you need, what's in alignment with your own um, expression um, and your own pleasure, then that can that can really um, mean that you've, you've got some advantages, but you're still carrying all this kind of judgment, shame and, you know, perhaps historically, but perhaps, you know, current. And so we really need to to kind of 
to hold both of these experiences together and understand, you know, how for any given, you know, um, queer person who's navigating sex, what's important for them to hold in mind, what um, what are they going to need to um, to heal, to work on and to um, to be aware of so that they can have pleasurable and safe sexual experiences. How do those experiences, I suppose, get pathologized as problems and what more could be done to move beyond pathologizing? Why is, I suppose, that important? Mm. Um, so they all get pathologized as, as problems. So, you know, as psychologists, we use the DSM, uh, the Diagnostic Manual, and, um, you know, there's there's really no acknowledgement of the the impact of the broader social context so a social context that um uh doesn't prioritize women's pleasure a social context that um, has gender roles that reinforce the prioritization particularly of cis males pleasure um and so what this means is that actually you know a lot of the time women don't um the it's not normalized uh, to explore your body, your pleasure, your experiences. And, um, uh, you know, it's also, uh, so, so that contributes to their own lack of understanding, but also the lack of curiosity and perhaps prioritisation of their partner or partners when they're engaging in sexual ex- activities. So this this broader social context really contributes to a lot of arousal difficulties, a lot of issues with pain, a lot of issues with discomfort, um, but the individual is diagnosed so they're pathologized for a social issue you know or or an um pathologized for an issue that might be really heavily contributed by this the broader social environment um so it it's so important that that we acknowledge that because if if we pathologize individuals, then we're just adding further to their experience of shame and their internalized guilt. And we're not actually accurately depicting what the issue is and how they need to move towards healing. So it's important for healing. It's important for reframing section and pleasure. And it's important for, you know, furthering LGBTIQ plus rights and, you know, smashing the stigma and shame. Yeah, and I, I was just about to ask about, you know, what strategies can be used to combat, um, you know, that really, I guess, narrow pathologizing kind of viewpoint. But you've just said it, it's about reframing, it's about challenging um, those those systems and, and all of those things that are pre-existing and perhaps uh, cover up the gaps that exist. Um, but are there any other particular strategies or, uh, I don't know, like supports out there for people who are experiencing um, dyspareunia or painful sex? So if we're if I was working individually with a client, then what we would do is we'd look back over their life and their history all the messages that they received from their family, from their friends, all the things that maybe they subconsciously absorbed, you know, through media, um, through social media, through porn. And we'd look at, you know, what kind of messages were sent to them, you know, about their body, about sex, about being queer, you know, and what did they internalise. So they can clearly identify it consciously because once something is conscious and you can interact with it, that's when you can start to to, to heal and you can develop an alternative way of looking at yourself and 
looking at your body and looking at, at sex. So th- that's that's probably one of the most important things is that is that process of identification and and reflection. And then from there, you know, we in therapy, we use other strategies um, to like sensate therapy, um, schema therapy, internal family systems. Um, all of these things can can help to start you know, developing different behavioural strategies, but also looking at those kind of internal relationships with your sexual part, with with parts of you that are holding shame and stigma. Um, yeah, so once we can kind of clearly see all that, there's a really, um, you know, hopeful path forward. And, you know, we've seen so many people, uh, you know, uh, recover, you know, have wonderful sex, have a better relationship with their body. So it's totally possible. Um, you know, we just need to kind of, clearly identify these factors and, and and see them together but i suppose before we finish um sarah where can people find out more about um your work or if they're curious to find out more about um the uh, dyspronia uh or i mean even uh ships more broadly where can they find out more yeah so the best place is our website so that's um shippsychology.com.au uh we have lots of blogs that are written by our psychologists on there um i think we have a few on dyspareunia we also have our training um listed on there as well i have a specific dyspareunia training if you'd like to dive deeper into this topic um and we also post a lot of content on our instagram so I really believe in taking information out of the therapy rooms and out of peer-reviewed journals and making it accessible for the public. So we really dedicate a lot to our um, our public resources. So, yeah, follow us on Instagram. Beautiful. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sarah, and very much looking forward to your session at the LGBTIQ plus Women's Health Conference this year. Thanks again for your time. Yeah, I can't wait. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Well, 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 supported by Thorn Harbour Health on Joy and the Community Radio Network. For more LGBTIQ plus health and wellbeing and much more, check out Thorn Harbour on social media at Thorn Harbour or via the website thornharbour.org. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.